Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com plus. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll hear how researchers are reviving cells in dead pig brains, learn about the latest spring science books, and find out the secret structures within lightning. I'm Shamni Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up in the show, we're talking about neuroscience. For obvious reasons, whole brains are difficult things to work with in a lab, and most lab-based neuroscience is done on tissue samples or small cultures of brain cells. But this week in Nature, a paper presents a new way to study brains by plugging them into a machine that partially restores their function. Reporter Nick Howe has been talking to the researchers involved to find out more. The idea for this study came about from a very routine observation. We and other scientists have observed that viable cells can be harvested from post-mortem brains and culture in a dish. This indicates that cells in the post-mortem brain still have the capacity to be revived. This is Nenad Sestan, a professor of neuroscience at Yale School of Medicine. The idea he's talking about is whether it's possible to restore brains after death. When the heart stops beating, brains lose oxygen and begin to deteriorate rapidly. This deterioration was thought to be irreversible. We were very surprised by this finding and that's why it took us five years before we submitted the paper. We just wanted to be sure that this is what we are seeing. The team took brains from pigs that had been slaughtered for food production. Four hours after death, they hooked up the brains to a machine called Brain X. Brain X pumped or perfused a blood-like substance into and out of the removed brains and simulated the function of the heart, lungs, kidneys and liver. The artificial blood had chemicals in it that the team hoped would encourage the recovery of the brains, such as compounds that prevent cell death. 
And indeed, by hooking up the brains to brain eggs, they were able to revive the cells and restore some functions for around six hours. And what we can show that basically the brain, and that means the cells, is consuming oxygen and glucose, which are two major nutrients, and it's producing CO2 and other metabolites that are a clear sign of that cells are viable. What's more, Nenad and his team showed that the brains retained some of their functions. They demonstrated inflammatory responses similar to living brains, their synapses were able to fire, and the brains responded to certain drugs. And we show that basically the cells in our perfused brain have all signs that are associated with normal functioning cells. This is a striking result, says Simone Di Giovanni, a professor of neuroscience at Imperial College London, who wasn't associated with this study. I think the extent to which they were able to preserve the survival of many cells into the brain and the extent to which they were able also to show that there was some function at the cellular level also preserved for many hours. So this was quite surprising and very interesting. Having restored functions to cells, Nenad and his team believe that isolated brains could be a useful model system for answering neuroscience questions. Simon agrees. This can be something that we could exploit in the future to understand cellular and molecular mechanisms of disease or of physiology. So the brains could be useful models for testing drugs or answering neurological questions. They wouldn't be able to answer every question, though, as the brains were not fully functioning. But this was by design. If at any point activity associated with consciousness or sensation was detected, Nenad and his team would have stopped the experiment immediately, on ethical grounds. The brains were not alive, but they weren't exactly dead either. At the cellular level, these brains are very close to being alive. But if we consider life of a brain as the expression of the functionality of the brain, then they're very, very far from being alive. In other words, the isolated brains didn't show the organised activity that we see in living brains. They would be unable to learn, remember or perceive the world but the individual cells within them showed signs of being alive. Because these brains sit in an in-between zone, being neither alive nor exactly dead, they challenge our assumptions about death itself. Our current understanding is that death means irreversible loss of brain function. This new research study suggests that that may not be the case. This is Nita Farahani, a professor of philosophy and law at Duke University. The irreversibility that we thought existed with the loss of brain function from oxygen deprivation may in fact at least partly be reversible. And if that's the case, our existing definition of death, which is so important to things like being able to declare a human legally dead, so important for us to be able to have that person qualify for organ donation, for example, those things are now fundamentally challenged by 
the possibility of being able to reverse the damage from loss of oxygen to the brain. Another consideration is that restoring function to a brain after death could lead to consciousness and sensation. Whilst in this study there was no EEG activity, which is a marker of consciousness, the study used neuronal activity blockers and anaesthetic. It's possible that these prevented any form of consciousness arising. There's still a gap between this study and achieving any kind of consciousness or any kind of sentience-like capabilities, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means that there may be more work to do before it could get there. This study raises many questions, both scientific and ethical. The study will need to be replicated and attempts made to understand whether consciousness could occur and, if it did, how scientists and society should respond to that possibility. Despite the challenging ethical questions, Nita and her colleagues think it's important that this research continues. We are enthusiastic about this research and think that it's really important that this research be allowed to proceed. So we're excited about the possibilities that this offers um, to offer insights into studying the brain. And we also recognize that this research team really is a model for trying to address the ethical questions that research raises, particularly when ethics hasn't caught up with the science. That was Nita Farahani from Duke University. She and a group of other ethicists have written comment pieces in this week's Nature about the study, which you can find over at nature.com opinion. You also heard Simone Di Giovanni from Imperial College London and Nenad Sestan from Yale School of Medicine. You can read Nenad's paper over at nature.com. As Nick said in his piece, this research raises quite a few questions and listeners, you might have some of your own. If you head over to the story about this work at nature.com slash news, you'll find a box where you can send in your questions, which our reporting team will then try to answer in a follow-up news article. Shamani, spring has very much sprung here in the UK, and that means it's time for that regular and, dare I say, iconic symbol of springtime. Oh, daffodils, cherry blossom, chocolate eggs, frolicking lambs. Nope, even more iconic than those. It is, of course, nature's spring book selection, which picks some of the season's top science tomes. To find out about some of the books, I spoke to Barb Kaiser, nature's books and arts editor, who told me about the theme that runs through the selection. So the way that I've been conceptualizing it to myself is that a lot of science is actually ensemble work. So we think of science as enacted by these lone stars. And what a lot of books are showing these days is how really the lone stars are just part of a constellation. So obviously Einstein changed the course of physics and the way we think about the universe. But even he was part of a larger landscape of scientists who were working to prove his theories, for instance. And two of these researchers were Frank Dyson and, in particular, Arthur Stanley Eddington, who's the subject of three books looking at his 1919 expedition to study an eclipse to test the theory of general relativity. And this is a story we told in a past cast a couple of weeks back. Barb, what can you tell me about these books? 
Yeah, so Daniel Kennefick has written No Shadow of a Doubt. It's a straightforward history, a very rich history of the eclipse expeditions. And he seeks to quell any doubts over Arthur Eddington's reputation regarding the proof. The second book is Ron Cohen's Gravity Century, and that looks at all of the developments, the discoveries that stemmed from the proof all the way up to black holes, which, of course, are big news now. And Matthew Stanley's Einstein's War is a more generalized history looking at how relativity conquered the world, as the subtitle has it. And what sort of a sense of the research am I getting from these books? So these three books sort of encapsulate the daring do aspect, the difficulties in 1919 of enacting this sort of proof. And it's interesting, really, to see how we don't think instantaneously of Arthur Eddington or Frank Dyson in connection with Einstein, and yet they were absolutely essential to establishing his theory of general relativity and making him a world celebrity. Well, the subject of your next book is somebody who I think you'd struggle to describe as a world celebrity, and this is Thomas Harriet. Bob, who was he? Thomas Harriet was a hugely accomplished mathematician living in the 16th century, who, after his death, left a large box of mathematical papers that have only recently been parsed. So Robin Arianrod's biography, which is called Thomas Harriet and reviewed wonderfully by Georgina Ferry, shines a light on these discoveries. For instance, Harriet produced the first drawing of the moon through a telescope independently of Galileo and before Galileo. And he did the same in formulating laws of motion and falling bodies. So if he's made all these discoveries, then why is he not better known? Yeah, so it literally is that evocative rule, publisher perish. Harriet simply fell prey to it. And we sometimes forget that in the past, there were scientists who did not publish. The author of the book, Arian Rod, speculates that He simply may have been too busy. He was uh, one of those curiosity-driven greats. There is also some very interesting speculation, which is that one of Harriet's patrons was Sir Walter Raleigh, who was, of course, one of Queen Elizabeth I's great favorites. Raleigh fell prey to Elizabeth's, shall we say, quixotic nature and was imprisoned for some time in the Tower. Of course, we know this. But Harriet was also in prison for a few weeks, and it could be that for political reasons, he was simply keeping his head down. So I guess we'll never know you know, his reasons for not publishing some of this research that he did. But do you think this book helps to elevate him then to maybe where he needs to be? Absolutely. I think it is one of the first, if not the first, books to really emphasize his science. Well, let's do one more then from your selection, Barb. What have you got this time? Yes. So this is Gareth Williams unraveling the double helix. And unusually, in books that deal with this subject, he does not so much focus on Watson and Crick and Franklin and Wilkins, but rather on the precursors, the people, the scientists who led up to that. So this is maybe similar in vain to, to the Einstein books. Then we have these kind of sort of superstars at the top uh, and, and the, maybe the peripheral figures around. Yes, to some extent, although these are what I think of as collaborations through time. So he pulls out into the limelight some far lesser known people, such as 
Walter Sutton, Nancy Stevens, and William Cannon, who were all cytologists in the early 20th century, and the scientists who were working in X-ray crystallography in the 1920s to the 1950s. So a fairly exhaustive look then at some of the other names involved in the ultimate sort of, a well, unraveling of the double helix. Yes, and it counters that kind of tendency that we humans seem to have had since antiquity. We want heroes and we want authority figures and founts of knowledge that these people got a little and sometimes quite a lot of help from their friends and predecessors is fascinating and it really enriches the story of discovery. So I am discovering that discovery is in many ways a multi-layered and sometimes blurred phenomenon. That was Barb Kaiser. To read the reviews of all of this year's spring books, head over to nature.com slash news. Next up on the show, it's time for the research highlights. Read this week by Josie Olchin. Stick insects are renowned for being nondescript, most looking, well, like sticks. But two new species from Madagascar are not sticking to that trend, instead embracing a vibrant colour scheme. Researchers from the University of Göttingen in Germany had originally identified these two insects as unusual examples of existing species. But after analysing the creature's DNA, they concluded that they are actually two distinct new species. Acreoptera manga comes in stunning sky blue, while Acreoptera mariloco sports garish green, yellow and red. The latter stick insect can also be around 24 centimetres in length, making it one of the biggest insects around. Quite why these stick insects are canning camouflage in favour of getting gaudy is unclear, but the researchers suggest that it may help them attract mates or deter predators. Find that research over at Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution. When researchers want to know what makes up a complicated system, like a living cell, they often have to break it down and look at individual parts, which can destroy the samples they're trying to study. Now, a team of researchers from the University of Manchester have developed a new method for analysing results of a common analytic technique, nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, or NMR. The method allows a sample to be looked at as a whole. They've shown that it works by testing it on beer. Typically, NMR identifies the different chemicals within a sample as peaks on a graph. But when samples are complicated, these peaks overlap. Instead, this new technique, dubbed scalpel, allows the NMR measurements themselves to be broken up and analysed individually. This prevents overlap and means researchers don't have to destroy the sample. When the team used scalpel to look at beer, they were easily able to identify the maltose, lactose, glucose and ethanol that makes it up, without having to break it down. Drink in that research in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Next up, reporter Adam Levy brings us a striking scientific story. Humans have been marvelling at lightning since... Well, since as long as there have been humans... Of course, these days, most of us no longer attribute breathtaking thunderstorms to angry gods like Zeus or Thor. We know that lightning is essentially one big electrical discharge, a gigantic version of the spark you get when you shake hands after shuffling around on a carpet for too long. 
Ow! But don't let this simple analogy fool you. There's still plenty of mystery around lightning. So, like, when you see a lightning flash with your eyeballs, it just, it's very fast. It's like this very fast flash and a bang and it's done. But inside of that split second that it happens, there's tons of things that are going on. This is Brian Hare, a lightning physicist who's been probing some of these tons of things in a paper out this week in Nature. When I was starting my PhD, my advisor just finished a review paper, and in the first chapter, he mentioned the top ten questions of lightning, and they pretty much went, we don't know how lightning initiates, we don't know how it propagates, we don't know how it connects to ground, and we don't know why it does all the things that it does after that. I'm thinking about this, wait, that's uh, the beginning, the middle, the end, uh, that, that's the whole thing. The reason that researchers struggle to answer these pretty fundamental lightning questions is because lightning is so hard to study. As common as lightning is, it's unpredictable. It's also dangerous, so it's hard to get close to, and it involves complex processes over a whole range of space and time scales. One way of investigating lightning is to turn a blind eye to the visible light and instead focus on the pulses of radio waves that the lightning emits as it travels. A so-called lightning mapping array picks up these pulses with multiple radio antennas at once. By combining the signals, the array can create a 3D map of a lightning flash's evolution over time. Lightning mapping arrays typically use 10 or so antennas spread out over 100 square miles. But Brian and his team have a different approach for looking inside a flash of lightning. They use the Low Frequency Array Radio Telescope, or LOFAR. LOFAR is of a new type of radio telescope that just has a bunch of very simple antennas. They're not much more complex than just the antenna that comes off of your car. And there's just hundreds of those spread over a very large area. So if lightning happens anywhere within this large area, it's like 3,000 square kilometers, then we can measure how lightning develops with meter scale precision. This precision allows for intricate images of both the structure and development of lightning events, as Sonia Benke, a lightning researcher who wasn't involved in this study, explains. My reaction to this is a little bit of awe <laughs> because, you know, my background is in uh, the making these kinds of lightning maps. And so to be able to, to see this fine detail in it um, is um, breathtaking, I guess. <laughs> this is mo the most structure, you know, that I've seen in, you know, on a map of lightning. But these lightning maps do more than take your breath away. In peering at the data... Brian and his team have been able to spot details that no one has seen before. We're thinking, okay, now we have these really sharp images. What exactly do we want to study? I know. Let's just look at this spot on the lightning. We looked at it, and all of a sudden, we noticed these groupings of uh, radio emissions that looked weird. Uh, and they didn't fit what our idea of lightning. It was completely unexpected. After lightning initiates, it polarizes with positive and negative branches. Each branch grows and splits, but in different ways. The unexpected groupings were spotted on the positive branches, which emit fewer radio pulses and so are generally harder to study. 
and the groupings turned out to provide more than just added detail to the jagged lightning structure that you're familiar with. Here's how to picture what the team found. So, okay, we have this big jagged line that goes to ground, and we have all these little lines sort of coming off the top. And those things are big. Those are f- those jagged lines coming off the top are five kilometers long. So zoom in to one of those, but keep zooming in. So you have zoom in five kilometers to one kilometer to 500 meters. Keep zooming in all the way down to 10 to 100 meters. They're little tiny like hairs. Like think of like a needles on an evergreen tree sticking off of the main channel. We had no idea that these needles existed. None. So yeah, I would say this is a totally new observation, um, and it's it's revealing detail about um, the part of the discharge that we've always had a really hard time seeing. The implications of what that means, you know, shows us more about the new things about the physics of how the discharge propagates in the first place. It seems these needles aren't just decorations on the positive branches of lightning. It may be said that lightning never strikes twice, but Brian informs me that this saying is not backed up by evidence. A single lightning event can strike the same spot several times in quick succession, and this new discovery could help explain why. The needles seem to be sapping electrical current from the positive lightning branch, causing a portion of it to die off and disconnect, leading to the multiple ground strikes. But spotting the needles on the Tree of Lightning is just the start of the story. There are plenty more mysteries about the beginning, middle and end of lightning that techniques like the LOFAR radio telescope could help shed light on. These interesting things that we discover about lightning are usually about looking really close at one lightning flash and seeing something weird and with this nice, beautiful, fine detail um, in these low-floor observations, um, I'm sure that there's a lot more that we can learn about lightning from them. That was Sonia Benke, who's at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in the US. And before her, Brian Hare of the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, both speaking with Adam Levy. You can find Brian's study, plus a news and views, in the usual place. Finally then, on this week's show, it is of course time for the news chat and I'm joined here in the studio by Holly Else, one of the reporters here at Nature. Holly, hi. Hi, Ben. Only time for one story this week, Holly, and we're going to dive 7,000 metres down into the Mariana Trench to look into the genome of a fish. What's going on here? This is a piece of research that looks at the genome of the snailfish, an inhabitant of the Mariana Trench, which is one of the deepest places in the ocean. Obviously, it's very dark and cold, and the creatures that live there have to endure extreme amounts of pressure. You know, it's the same as having the Eiffel Tower balance on your big toe, for example. Which is something I resolutely do not want, Holly. But uh, why are researchers trying to sort of unpick the genome of this creature then? So they want to get a better understanding of how these creatures have evolved to live under these conditions. So what genes are switched on or off, for example, to help them withstand the, the pressure and the, the cold, dark conditions. Mm, and, uh, and a paper has come out in Nature, Ecology and Evolution, which is giving an insight into how these fish are doing it. Yeah, so uh, these researchers took uh, some samples of the snailfish from 7,000 metres down in the Mariana Trail and compared it to a close relative snailfish which lives in tide pools on the surface and they found several genetic changes that they think could be linked to adaptations for living in the deep sea. 
Right, and uh, what sort of adaptations did the researchers find? So they found the gene for hardening bones was inactive. They also found that they had lost some genes for sensing light, and they had an expanded number of genes that controlled fatty acid metabolism. And they suspect this is to help the cell membranes of the fish stay flexible, so they don't get all hard under the pressure and become impermeable. Okay, right. I mean, this sounds like quite a quite an exciting thing. I mean, what are researchers saying about it? Yeah, they're really excited. This is the first time an animal living below 6,000 metres has had its genome sequenced. So they're all really interested to find out how um, the genes have been affected by this environment. And some of them are keen to get into the lab to use other tools like CRISPR to explore the genes in more detail. Well, thank you for joining me, Holly. Listeners, for all the news from the world of science, head over to nature.com news. Well, that's it for this week's show. But don't forget, if you've got any questions about that pig brain story, our reporters would be keen to hear them. Find the article at nature.com forward slash news. There's no regular show next week, but listen out for an extended news chat. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. See you next time. Dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a thousand new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.